0: thanks for waving the microphone at me, uh, I could tell I wasn't on. I uh, uh, really appreciate those guys up there. Um, the only time you know they're there is when they mess up, right? So uh, we appreciate you guys, we really do. Well, good morning. Um, I, I've, I've often said that um, my wife is much more valuable and does much more in this church uh, to this church for this church uh, than I do and uh, I've seen that borne out this week as so many of you have reached out and expressed your concern and your prayers and checked up on her and and um, I, I just want to let you know that she's she's definitely doing better than she was um the first few days but um the doctors made it clear that there's a very long journey ahead, and so uh, please continue to pray and pray that this is a permanent solution for her. We're so grateful uh, for all of you, and, uh, and I, I just wanted to pass that along from Polly as well. If you could turn in your Bibles to John 19, that's where we're going to be reading this morning for the most part, but as you know, there are four Gospels, and sometimes it's useful if you're reading an event in one Gospel to get some context from another, And we're going to do that this morning as we read through uh, this account uh, of the death of Jesus. And uh, so here's what we're going to do. Stay in John 19. I'm going, to, I'm going to move over to Matthew 27 a couple times. And when I do that, I'll have those verses up on the screen uh, so that you don't have to flip back and forth. Um, I just didn't want you to be distracted by that this morning. Page 905 in the Pew Bible if you need that. John 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him or scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Erme, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And now to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Back to John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then finally, in Matthew 27, Beginning in 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, kept keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to know what to say after reading this familiar event other than just to say thank you. And thank you, Jesus, uh, for what you endured on our behalf and, God, I pray as, as we see this event unfold again, that you would allow us to see it with fresh eyes and open hearts, that we would be challenged and convicted by it, encouraged and changed by it, in the name of Jesus, amen. There's a, there's a phrase that I really like, and, um, it's, it's actually a phrase that is the tagline on my emails at work. Uh, I say it so much that my colleagues uh, call it Kevin 316. Uh, <laughs> and it goes like this. A problem well stated is half the solution. You ever heard of something like that? A problem well stated is half the solution. So many problems do not get solved because the person with the problem can't properly explain it or the person trying to solve the problem doesn't take the time to understand it. And so if you take the time to well-state it and understand it, you're, you're at least halfway to the solution. And I thought about that this week as I was considering our series, From Garden to Glory. We're coming to the, really the culmination, the climax of this story this morning. And it speaks to a solution to a problem that has been laid out from the beginning all the way back to the garden. This is a problem that every single person in this room has. This is a problem that every human being who has ever been born past, present, and future has. And so rather than jumping into the solution, I wanted to make sure that we understand the problem and that the problem is well stated. Because listen, once we agree to the problem, uh, the solution becomes very evident. And so we're going to take some time this morning to make sure we understand the problem. Listen, if, if you've never heard this, this is, this is great. You need to understand the problem. If you have heard this, well, we need to be able to articulate the problem because it is the foundation of the gospel. And so if you're sharing the gospel, if you can get the person you're talking to to agree to the problem, well, there's only one solution. And so let's look at the problem. The problem began all the way back in the garden, right? God creates this perfect world where man can live and grow and thrive and flourish, but sin enters. And when sin enters, sin does what it does. It destroys, it ruins It spoils. It taints. And and, and most of all, for us, as far as the problem goes, it separates. It separates us from God. And and God gives Adam and Eve, he, he, uh, he banishes them from the garden. He gives them the first of many visual reminders of the problem from the Old Testament the cherubim with the flaming sword standing guarding the garden that they could not go back in. This is where the presence of God dwelt. God is defining the problem for them very early on that, that I am holy and you are not. And your sin has separated you from your creator. Of course, we see that sin proliferates to the point that it fills the earth and God destroys the earth with a flood. But then after the flood, we have Noah, and we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God establishing his people, the people of Israel. Maybe things are looking up. He delivers them from Egypt, and he takes them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. Of course, the law is a good thing, and yet the law is a constant reminder of the problem, because now God has codified his standard that they must keep. And they're reminded every single day that they cannot keep this standard because if you break one law, you've broken them all, and God's standard is perfection. He then gives them the sacrificial system, which is terrific, and yet it is a daily reminder, visual reminder, grotesque reminder of the problem. These sacrifices must be slain, blood must be shed day after day year after year, century after century, a reminder of the problem. And then he gives them this beautiful thing called the tabernacle and the temple, which is amazing where his presence would dwell. And yet, again, visual reminder of the problem, walls, barriers, veils. God is holy. You are not. Your sin has separated you from him and then you go through the rest of the Old Testament it's just this pattern of Israel sinning and God banishing them again now they're in captivity to Assyria and to Babylon you get to the end of the Old Testament it's looking pretty bleak if you're reading this through for the first time you're like man it's pretty hopeless the problem has been well stated if I could summarize the problem I would do it this way for our purposes this morning. Number one, God is holy and I am not. Number two, I am separated from God because of my sin. Isaiah says this most clearly to Israel in in Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities... Your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is the problem. And Isaiah is pointing to the third aspect of this problem, that justice must be satisfied before mercy can be shown. Man, that's, that's, that's a, that, this is what separates the Christian faith from religion. Right there. Justice must be, a a pure and holy and just God cannot just say, you know, that sin, I'm just going to forget about that. I'm just going to let that go. I'm going to turn a blind eye to that. A just and holy God cannot do that. Justice must be satisfied before mercy can be shown. And so we're coming to the realization, number four, that I cannot solve this problem because I'm never gonna be able to meet that standard. By the way, government cannot solve this problem. No military force can solve this problem. No politician or laws or constitutions can solve this problem. No amount of money can solve this problem. No amount of benevolence or good works can solve this problem. Well, By the way, religion cannot solve this problem either. Religion just says try harder. Religion says here's a list of things that you can do to to feel better about yourself, but you're still not solving the problem. And you come to the realization that, number five, a perfect, permanent substitute is needed. Uh, Luther would say an alien righteousness, A, a righteousness, something from outside of us, is the only thing that can save us. Religion says, you know, you, you have everything you have inside of you to save yourself. The problem shows us that, that I need something outside of myself to solve this problem. And so it looks pretty grim at the end of the Old Testament if you're reading this for the first time. But maybe you go back and you read it again like, like we did as we went through this series And you realize that all the way back from the garden, amidst this seeming hopelessness, there was a thread of hope. And it started all the way in the garden, right? The promise to Adam and Eve that a seed is going to come and he's gonna make things right. The line of that seed is protected when God saves Noah from the flood. And then from that line of Noah comes Abraham. God chooses Abraham and he says, the seed's going to come from your line, and in your line, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. And then you have Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons and Israel. And, and he goes even further. He says it's, it's that, that seed's going to come through Judah. It's going to come through the line of David. And then you see all these promises and, and prophecies and, and clues in the, in the Psalms and the prophets. One is coming. The seed is coming. The chosen one is coming. The anointed one is coming. The Messiah, the Christ. And then you finally turn the page from Malachi 1 to Matthew 1, and that was 400 years of silence. And amidst this hopelessness, you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Right, and if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, let's go! Right? Finally, you're like, you're like uh, Cody at the Notre Dame game. Let's go. He's finally here, the seed, the chosen one is here. Let's do this. He's gonna conquer Rome, he's gonna liberate his people, we're gonna live happily ever after. But you don't get too far in the New Testament you get to the end of the first book, you get to chapter 27 and this chosen one, this seed, this hero of the story, He's not sitting on a throne. He's hanging on a cross. you got to be like the kid in Princess Bride who says to his grandpa, "You're, you're messing up the story. This is not how it's supposed to go. And so you go back and you look again. And you see the clues have been there all the way back from the beginning. Even in the garden, when he said the seed is coming but that seed's gonna be bruised. And you see the clues in the, in the Passover, in the sacrificial system, in the tabernacle, that, that this one that's coming, and in the prophets, the one that's coming is gonna suffer, and he's gonna die. And we even saw it a couple weeks ago in the birth of Jesus, right? Before he was born, you're gonna call his name Jesus, because he's gonna save his people, not from Rome, because that wasn't their problem. He's going to save the, his people from their sins. And then, and then last week, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, right? He puts any, any thoughts or any, any doubts to rest about why Jesus came when he introduces him into his public ministry, sees Jesus coming, and he doesn't say, behold the Lion of Judah. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins of the world, because that was the problem. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at the death of Jesus again. And again, a problem well stated is half the solution. We're halfway done, because now that we know the problem, we're going to see the main point uh, this morning, which is this, the death of Jesus is the only possible solution to humanity's problem. And so we're going to look at this, and if you like me, this is very familiar territory, right? Uh, I've studied this hundreds of times, or heard this hundreds of times. And I know the challenge that we have this morning for those of us who have been Christians for a long time. I know I've said this before, but I experienced this again a few weeks ago. We were on vacation, and we were on a train riding into this valley that was just spectacular. It, it, there were mountains on both sides and there's waterfalls and streams and it's green and just amazing. And, uh, of course, I'm doing the typical tourist thing. I'm hanging out the window. I got three cameras going at once and, uh, you know, it's just awesome, right? And, and what I've learned, though, when I, when I experience something like that, at some point I look around at the other people on the train or on the bus or whatever. And I always see the same thing. That there, there are people on there that have taken this journey many times before maybe, or they live in this valley, or they, uh, they work in this valley, and, and they have lost their awe. It no longer moves them. They are no longer amazed. In fact, they don't even look up anymore. And whenever I see that, I I, I remind myself of the challenge that I have and that we we have as Christians who are very familiar with these things as we take this journey into this familiar valley. Are we no longer moved by what we see? Have we lost our awe and amazement at what Jesus has done for us? I, I encourage you this morning, look up one more time at the Savior on the cross. And so we're going to look at four uh, brief pictures from this story. And, I, and, and these four specifically speak to the problem. That's, that's why I, I think these are, are best fit uh, for us this morning. The first picture that uh, we need to look at is of course Jesus himself the crushed Savior. We could choose many words uh, to describe Jesus at this point, the wounded Savior, the beaten Savior, the suffering Savior. I think the word crushed captures most accurately what was happening here to Jesus. And, and this language is used in Isaiah 53. We'll revisit Isaiah 53 here many times. It, it's centuries before Jesus was born, it describes what's going to happen now, starting in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This, this speaks to the scourging from Pilate, the beatings, the striking, the crown of thorns that was likely pounded into his skull. And, and that's just to get to the cross. And, and I'm sure you've heard the excruciating details of what it was like to be crucified. And, um, and we're not going to go through all those details this morning. Uh, it is painful to consider. And, and if, if you think that it, the, the scriptures say that he didn't even look human, it's tough to think about that. I, I don't think the, the main purpose of considering what Jesus endured on our behalf is for us to just feel pity for Jesus and to feel sorry for him to the point that, that our faith almost becomes a guilt-driven faith where we're just like, oh, well, you know, he did all that for me. I should probably live for him. That's not the description of our faith in the New Testament. I think a more valuable perspective, if I let my mind's eye look up once again to the Savior on the cross, then I see that spectacle there. Uh, For me, a more valuable perspective is to look at that and say, that is what it took to deal with my sin. As grotesque as that is, that is what my sin looks like to a holy God. That is how far he had to go and was willing to go to deal with my sin. The Christian that properly beholds the crushed Savior will never take their sin lightly again. We'll never minimize their sin. We'll never make light of sin. Right? Or, or God forbid that we would ever willingly, consciously sin and just think, you know, I'll ask forgiveness later. No big deal. Thanks, Jesus. You're the best. It was my sin that held him there. I think we need to make Isaiah 53 personal. Surely he has borne my griefs, carried my sorrows. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. And with his wounds, I am healed. The crushed Savior uh, bore my sin. That's the first picture because that's, that's the problem I needed solved. I needed someone outside of me because I couldn't do it myself. The second picture is the forsaken son. This is one that we can't really understand. This is the picture of, of God the Father turning away from his son to the point that Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? The one who had Jesus, who had been one with the Father since before the foundation of the world, to eternity past, now He is separated from His Father. Again, Isaiah 53 is helpful here. All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord. That's an amazing statement the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 goes even further, more, even a more jarring statement when he says this, that for our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become The righteousness of God we we have no idea what that what that kind of anguish was that the perfect Son of God being made sin for me I I don't even know how to process that I don't even know I have a frame to understand what that was like But this is this is Jesus saying I am offering you my righteousness to solve your problem and I'll take your sin in return. That's man that's a good trade, don't you think? Is that the best trade that's ever been offered in all of human history? I'll take your sin that separates you from God and, and I'll give you my righteousness. I don't know if any of the rest of you are investors like, like I am. Uh, I've talked with many of you about investing and investments uh, either like in your 401k or individually or whatever and every investor I have ever talked to always has that one story of regret. The trade that they didn't make that they should have or the trade that they made that they shouldn't have. It's usually the trade that they didn't make. And I have such a story. And it's a doozy. Uh, uh, I'm an IT guy and I work with a lot of really smart uh, computer guys and they were in early on the uh, digital currency craze uh, back in 2009. They came out of the financial crisis of 2008. And uh, they were doing Bitcoin before most people even knew what it was. And they were doing Bitcoin mining and they were trying to um, raise some capital to, uh, to be able to do more of that. And, uh, and so they came to me and asked me if I would invest. And uh, they just wanted a, a couple thousand dollars uh, and they were going to give me uh, a thousand Bitcoin in return. And, um, and you know, it, was, it was very volatile at the time. and. Um, and we were saving money for the boys' college, and my other investments were doing all right. So I was like, hey, I'm just going to pass. And uh, if you see the pain on my face, uh, in 2021, the price of a single Bitcoin was over $60,000. Yeah, it still hurts. Yeah, you want do to the, do the math, right? $60 million. Um, and now, I guarantee you, one of the finance guys has already done the math, and like, you're tithing on that, right? Uh, <laughs> well, that would have been an amazing offering of praise, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, we can do the, the roof and the foyer. Uh, but uh, yeah, as much as I regret that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's, it's meaningless. Because what would, what would it profit? Me if I gained $60 million and lost my soul. That's not the trade that matters. The only trade that you're going to regret for eternity is the one that Jesus offered. I give you my righteousness for your sin. I can't buy my way out of that problem. Only through the forsaken Son who has made sin for me can we solve that problem the third picture is the finished work again Isaiah 53 is helpful here it says this out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied this is speaking of the father being satisfied with the sacrifice of the son by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. This this word satisfied here in the New Testament is that long word, propitiation, which means that that God's justice, his holiness, his wrath against sin by the work of Jesus was satisfied. Remember, that's that's the biggest part of the problem. Justice must be satisfied before mercy can be given. And so Jesus, knowing that his work was complete, says maybe the three most powerful words ever spoken on this planet. Three words that changed the eternal destinies of millions upon millions upon millions including you and me if you're trusting in Jesus. It is finished. Paid in full. It is finished. Jesus had his suffering on the cross, all of those beatings and scourgings, those six hours on the cross, it is finished. The Son of Man has suffered and died, it is finished. But not only that, his 30 plus years on this earth, living a perfectly sinless life, Life, where he was tempted at all points like as we are, and then some by Satan himself. He spent that life serving and teaching and healing only to be rejected and despised and opposed and betrayed by those closest to him. It is finished. The prophets, the prophecies, the promises all made, pointing forward to Jesus, fulfilled. It is finished. The tabernacle, the temple, the daily, yearly sacrifices over and over and over, now offered once for all. It is finished. The covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, and David, fulfilled. It is finished. And even all the way back to the garden, the seed that would be bruised, fulfilled, it's finished. Those are three powerful words that echo through all of human history, even to today, right? So when Satan wants to condemn you for your past, or for your weakness, or for your failures, right? you take him to Romans 5 and say, so There's no more condemnation because it is finished. Go away. You see, that third point, justice must be satisfied before mercy can be shown. Paul captures this well in some of my favorite verses in Romans 3, familiar words but powerful for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just, I love this, the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, right? Because his justice has been satisfied, he can now be the justifier of many by his mercy and his grace. That was only possible through the death of Jesus. The third, or the fourth final picture, and this is such a great, after all these visual reminders of the problem, God leaves them with a visual reminder of the solution, the torn veil. Uh, it's hard to imagine what this would have meant to the Jewish people who had grown up with all these barriers, right? And, and the tabernacle, you know, they were only allowed in the outer court unless they were a priest right? And, and you and me, we were in the parking lot, right? Because we're Gentiles. Separate. Barriers. No access. And now, and this veil at this point would have been, in the, Herod's temple, would have been 60 feet tall and four inches thick. This was not a human event. This was a divine event. God renting the veil. And just in case you were curious, right? Top to bottom, not bottom to top. right signifying access not just to the outer court not even just to the holy place within the veil to the holy of holies where the high priest was only allowed to go once a year and even then it was he was covered by the cloud of incense to protect him and now we have access even gentiles like us no way We don't have to guess as to whether this is what the the torn veil is signifying, because the writer of Hebrews uh, says it clearly. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, which is the holy place and the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the veil, that is, through his flesh, his sacrifice. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. It's hard to explain the transformation that that is, right? From fear and separation to access and assurance. Man, uh, can I challenge you with maybe one practice that will help you appreciate this more? Every time that you pray, get into the habit of taking a moment and understanding where you're standing or where you're kneeling when you pray. Just for a minute, before you start just your, your stream of requests, take a moment to remember that you are inside the veil. Take a moment uh, to look to the right hand and see your Savior. And boy, he better be there because if he's not there, then you're done, right? Every time you pray, you enter into the presence of God inside the veil. I suspect that might impact the way that we pray, right? We need to bring ourselves every single day to look up again. I think every single day we should find some way in, in your daily routine to make sure that you look up one more time at the crushed Savior, the forsaken Son. Remember the finished work and the torn veil. You see, as believers, we are called to go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? And, and the foundation of that gospel is the problem well stated. The, the modern church has robbed the gospel of its urgency and of its need. Because the modern church says, come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. Try God out. See if you're not a better person. That's not the problem. Nobody's going to want the solution if they don't understand the problem. God is holy and I am not. My sin separates me from him. Justice must be satisfied before mercy can be given. I can't solve that problem. I need a perfect, permanent sacrifice. Well, there's only one option. No other religion provides that option. And so we need to remember that. Let me close with this thought. The symbol of the Christian faith from the earliest days has been the symbol of the cross. And we always need to be careful with symbols, right? That sometimes human beings like to make the symbol more important than the reality that that symbol is pointing to. The, cross, the symbol of the cross doesn't have magic powers. Uh, it's, it doesn't have any merit in it. I don't think it helps you with vampires. It, it's, it's just a symbol. But boy, the, what that symbol points to, it doesn't mean it, it's not valuable, And useful for us because if we see that symbol and we look to the one that that symbol represents it it can be very helpful for us and here's what's interesting about that symbol it the symbol of the cross there were many different types of cross symbols that predate Jesus by centuries and in many different cultures But in almost every one of those cross symbols that had a, a vertical line intersecting with a horizontal line, the meaning was almost always the same. It was something divine intersecting with something human. Something of heaven intersecting something of earth. Isn't that interesting? that centuries before jesus came that the symbol of the cross was already foreshadowing him i mean who else can say that i am the personification of that symbol who else can say that i am divine and i am human fully god fully man that i am the one who came from heaven to live on earth i i think for us that symbol it could be a reminder of so many other things like we've talked about this morning it is It is the symbol of God's justice meeting God's mercy. That could only happen at the cross of Jesus. It's the picture of God's wrath meeting God's love. God's holiness meeting God's grace. Man, whenever you see a cross, take a minute, take a second to look up once again, and remember your problem, and remember that Jesus, the death of Jesus, is the only possible solution for humanity's problem. Let's pray, Father. We are grateful for your Word that that clearly shows us these things, and we rest in this, and we trust in this, and we base our lives and our hope for eternity on the death of Jesus, and. And uh, we look forward to next week when we see his uh, resurrection, which is our hope for eternity. And and, uh, I pray, God, that you will take these words, that you will just make us more conscious and aware of the crushed Savior and uh, what you have accomplished on our behalf, that we would never take our sin lightly again and that we would have an urgency to share with others the problem so that they will see their need of the solution. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.